Jodcasts, astronomy you can get your teeth into. With George Bendo, Christina Ilia, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver and Chris Wallace. The Jodcasts, July 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are George and Christina. Hello. Hello. And it's a different Christina than you might have heard before. Christina Ilia is presenting for the first time. So, Christina, would you like to tell us a bit about what you're doing? Hello, Mark. I'm Christina, and I'm a new summer student at the Georgia Bank Center of Astrophysics. I probe the galaxy with radio pulsars. I approve of anything to do with pulsars. And you're going to be starting your MPhys here in September, is that right? Yes, I will, here at the University of Manchester. That's excellent. That means that we are going to try and keep you on the Jodcast for as long as possible. Hopefully you'll do a PhD as well. Hopefully. In the show this time, Ian Morrison takes a look at what's happening in the July Northern Hemisphere night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. This month we don't have any news, and so we're going to launch straight into the interview about BICEP2, and it's Chris interviewing Dr. Clem Pryke. Today on the Jodcast we have Professor Clement Pryke from the University of Minnesota. Hi Clem. Hi. Now, I'd just like to start how lucky we are to have, to have interviewed Clem. Many of the listeners will probably have heard news of the uh, recent claim to detection of gravitational waves by BICEP2. And Clem is one of the principal investigators of BICEP2. You must be uh, must be pretty proud of your achievement. Yeah, it's been a long road. <laughs> so let's have a minute. So what is BICEP2 and uh, how did you detect gravitational waves? So BICEP-2 is a small, highly specialized radio telescope which is located at the South Pole in Antarctica. And it was built to try and detect uh, the signature of gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background, which is kind of like an afterglow from the Big Bang. And what were you looking for in the cosmic microwave background then? What tells you about gravitational waves? So the theory says that there may be uh, a very special imprint in the polarization pattern of the microwave background imprinted on it at 400,000 years after the beginning, after the Big Bang, by the presence of gravitational waves at that time. But these gravitational waves are, are hypothesized to come from the very, very tiny fraction of a second after the beginning. So really from that first instance of creation. Brilliant. And so you're looking for this particular source of polarization. What makes BICEP2 particularly special to be able to do that, as opposed to previous experiments that have tried? Well, basically because it's more sensitive. Uh, it was designed specifically to go after this signal and to go after it as aggressively as, and as quickly as possible. And so it's, it's very, very sensitive and it also has very good immunity to, you know, false signals that might arise from the ground or the atmosphere or whatever. So this is based in the South Pole? Yeah, it's actually located about one kilometer from the Earth's rotational axis, uh, in Antarctica where there's a, quite a large uh, science uh, installation, science base, that's run by the U.S. National Science Foundation. And why, why is it in, in the South Pole, then? So the reason it's the, one of the best locations on Earth for this kind of science is because the atmosphere there is incredibly dry. It's really uh, very counterintuitive. When you get off the plane, you're standing on 10,000 feet thick of ice, but yet it's one of the driest places on Earth. And the reason for that is, of course, that uh, water hasn't melted there for millions of years. Okay, brilliant. So you've got this highly sensitive experiment situated in the best place in the, in the world to measure these beer modes. 
Where did you expect the gravitational wave to come from? What is the cause of these gravitational waves? Right, so as I said, I mean, the specific goal that we went after was to detect gravitational waves that are hypothesized to have been generated, spawned, injected into the fabric of space uh, in a tiny, tiny fraction of a second after the beginning. So at about 10 to the minus 35 seconds, right? So if you imagine dividing a second by 10 35 times, that tiny, tiny fraction of a second after the beginning. The idea is there was this process called inflation, where the universe hyperexpanded, and that hyperexpansion will have injected into the fabric of space-time these gravitational waves. That's the signal that we went looking for, a theoretical prediction, but rather an uncertain theoretical prediction, right? The actual amount of such gravitational waves, the theorists refuse to say, right? They say, oh, well, it could be this big, but it could be a lot smaller, right? So uh, in some ways, rather a foolish experimental mission to go on, right? Because... Uh, could be, it's kind of like a wild goose case, chase, right? Uh, except we actually seem to have found the goose, which is uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> so gravitational waves were predicted by inflation. Why did people originally think of inflation as a model for the universe, the early universe? So the inflation theory came about uh, because it explains a bunch of things. It naturally explains a bunch of things which are otherwise there's really no explanation for uh, within you know, any of the available theories or models. So it explains things like why the uh, universe seems to have been very uniform at 400,000 years after the beginning. So when we look at the microwave background glow, we can see that the universe was almost uniform, uni uniform to within a fraction of a percent at that time. And the question is, how did it know to do that, right? How did it know to be the same temperature everywhere uh, at that time? And what inflation does is it takes a subatomic volume of the pre-existing universe and it hyper-expands it, and so it makes the universe smooth and uniform, as the real universe appears to be. Brilliant. So this is this is a theory which has been predicted for many years, then it was. Yeah, it was first proposed in the in the eighties, uh, and uh, you know some people would consider that it's already proven uh, because you know it makes these predictions that appear to be true. It also made this additional prediction of gravitational waves, and that's partly why we weren't looking for them. But more than that, if you can actually find these gravitational waves, you can get information about the exact time that inflation occurred, i.e. the energy scale at which inflation occurred. And that's getting information about fundamental physics at an energy scale way beyond what you can reach with particle accelerators here on Earth. So it's fundamental physics at super high energies is what it is. And so that's what made this uh, this result so exciting. Brilliant. So it's almost like, well, I mean, up to this point, it's kind of been the holy grail of kind of modern cosmology to get this. Yeah, holy grail, wild goose chase, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah, <laughs> trying yeah. to find this. Uh, I called volume. it. Uh, I called it looking for a needle in a haystack and finding a finding a crowbar, right? Because the <laughs> signal's about as big as anybody could imagine it being. So there was some. There was kind of the original kind of controversy when the paper first came out about how large this signal was, because people had. I mean, Planck had had predicted. Uh, well, had made a constraint which was smaller predicted value which was well, smaller than 0.1 and you found this kind of amplitude to be 0.2 yeah it's not really a, 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 a prediction from Planck it is a measurement based measurement, yeah. on, on temperature data and and as, as you say they, they, they were they were uh, saying that it ought to be less than 0.1 now you know there are a couple of things to say about that one is the best fitting value that we've measured is uh, of the signal that we've measured is 0.2 uh, 
But there's a big uh, so-called sample variance fluctuation on that. Basically, if you looked at another patch of sky, you might see 0.1, and it could be that the average value across the sky is 0.1, right? It's just in the little patch that we've uh, looked at, the value, the structure fluctuates up, right? It's bigger than than, than average. So that, that, that's one thing to say. Uh, you shouldn't get over-fixated on that 0.2 number. The other thing is that uh, there is a contribution in that 0.2 that comes from galactic dust emission. And uh, it's unclear how big that contribution is. In in the paper that we put out in March, it was looking like it was uh, pretty small, maybe 10%, right? Uh, uh, pretty negligible. There's there's talk since that it may be larger, right? Okay. So it's unclear what that value of R is going to end up being. Or, you know, uh, if in fact the dust polarization might end up explaining all of the signal. Although that still, still seems to me relatively unlikely. So why... Why, since recent, well, since you've published this paper, has your perception of the dust changed? Well, there's there's some actual published information from Planck now. They put out a paper uh, on the polarization of dust at 350 gigahertz, so at a higher frequency where the dust signal is much stronger. And so this is dust in our in our galaxy, which yeah. could mimic itself as as the signal that you're trying to trying to detect. Yeah, I mean, I would put it a little differently. I would say that that dust polarized emission definitely contributes some of the signal that we're seeing. The question is how much, right? <laughs> Just a bit of it, uh, half of it, most of it. It's unclear. So at the time, at the time, how, how did you put an estimate of, of the contribution from the dust? Uh, using uh, models which were already uh, in existence from people that have specialized in making such models of, of foreground emission, in this case particularly dust emission, uh, those models were not entirely unconstrained by data, but they didn't have the crucial input of real polarized measurements at 350 gigahertz, which is now uh, coming soon from Planck. So you're tenderly waiting this, uh, this data release from Planck again? Uh, yes, us and uh, everybody else. Everyone else. You mentioned in your talk that there was some work that you as a collaboration are also doing to try and find out whether this is dust or or real cosmological signal. Yeah, so in our in our paper that we put out in March, we already had an attempt to constrain the so-called spectral index, basically whether or not the signal is CMB-like or dust-like in terms of how its brightness varies as you change the frequency at which you're making the observations. Now, that constraint was based on previous data at a different frequency from the previous BICEP-1 experiment. Now, that data is not very sensitive. And uh, right now, with our current experiment, which is called Kekaray, we are taking additional data at that 100 gigahertz frequency. And we hope, we plan to be able to say something uh, to improve that spectral index constraint really pretty soon, within a few months. We're not promising it, uh, but we're working as hard as it, uh, on it as we can. So you have this data at 150 gigahertz, and the CMB, you hope, is nice and strong there. And it... I think I've got this right. So the dust would be lower at 100 than you'd expect the CMB to be. That's right. So the Sorry, dust, the, the, the dust is bright at high frequency and getting fainter as you go down in frequency. So if we look at 100 gigahertz and we see basically the same sky pattern and with a brightness ratio that matches the expectation from CMB, that's evidence against dust. Uh, if we were to see a much fainter uh, uh, sky pattern, that would be indicative of dust. So, uh, you know, 
that's that's uh, another way. So so either one can use the 350 maps from Planck to constrain. Is it CMB or is it dust? Because the 350 is only dust. Is that- well, uh, the 350 dust ought to be pretty dominant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Or, or you can go down in frequency and, and do the basically the same game. And that's what we're trying to do with our own data that's being taken right now. Is there any reason why there'd be some, some other contribution that would rise as you go down in frequency? Yeah, I mean, there's another phenomenon called synchrotron emission, which is dominance at low frequencies. So if you go down to, say, 20 gigahertz, it's the dominant thing on the sky. That synchrotron emission, I mean, we actually have maps of it from the WMAP, the previous space uh, experiment. Uh, you know, there are actual downloadable maps at 23 gigahertz. They don't have as much uh, sensitivity as one might like, but nevertheless, using those, we have convinced ourselves, and hopefully uh, now others, that uh, the synchrotron component of what we're seeing is negligible right so it's, it's really not a problem well it's pretty exciting this you've got uh well you have a signal which is definitely on the sky and there's uh this is some question as to whether it's dust or or this this mythical well hopefully not mythical gravitational <laughs> waves yeah no it's a super exciting time yeah that's fantastic thank you very much for joining us today you're welcome thanks for that chris and now we come on to the part of the show where we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So I'm going to go first, and I'm going to talk about the Earth this time, uh, and specifically NASA's new mission called the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2, or OCO2, which is the first space-based observation of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And you might wonder why it's called OCO2 instead of just OCO, and that's because OCO, the first didn't quite make it into operation. Something went a bit wrong there. But OCO2 has been launched early in July, and its purpose is just to study carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere by making 100,000 individual measurements around the sunlit side of the world every day. And the idea is to map where it is, uh, where carbon dioxide is being released into the atmosphere, both naturally and by humans, and also to look at what they call the sinks. So that's to say where carbon dioxide is taken out of the atmosphere by processes on land and in the ocean. And the whole idea is basically to give us a better handle on climate change and how that's going to affect our planet in the coming decades. So what wideband is the telescope going to be observing in? It's observing in the near-infrared. Which is kind of interesting because uh, the classical description of how the greenhouse effect works is that the Earth needs to radiate the energy that absorbs from the sun, and it will tend to radiate the energy in the mid-infrared. But if you block portions of the infrared spectrum where the Earth can radiate, uh, as you can do with uh, carbon dioxide, then the Earth needs to actually get warmer to be able to radiate that same energy away that it's absorbing from the sun. So it's just interesting that it's observing in the infrared, which makes sense. Yeah, what I probably should have mentioned is that's actually how they know that they're looking at carbon dioxide is by spectroscopy, so looking at the very precise wavelengths of light that are released by CO2. Um, And I just like this story as well because it shows that organisations like NASA don't just look out into space, but they also um, observe our own planet. And indeed, OCO2 is part of a whole little fleet of observatories which are being classed together as one super observatory called the A-Train, which I thought was a computer game. Well, it's actually an old jazz song from the 
40s, I think. <laughs> well, now it's also going to be uh, a fleet of observatories, and they will all work together to look at the Earth's atmosphere and, and its surface, and specifically to monitor what they say is, is the health, basically, of our, our environment here on Earth. Today I will be talking about Vesta, which is the second biggest asteroid in the solar system. Vesta was studied by the NASA spacecraft Dawn, and the interesting thing about Vesta is the dark stuff on the surface of Vesta always puzzled astronomers. Up until now, astronomers believed that the craters on the surface of Vesta were due to volcanic activity, but this new team showed the existence of serpentine on the surface of Vesta. And serpentine is a mineral that cannot exist at temperatures higher than 400 degrees Celsius, meaning the craters cannot be of volcanic origin, and they neither can be of origin of um, high impacts with other asteroids because those impacts happen at high temperatures. So those craters can only be uh, due to some small impacts with um, smaller bits of other asteroids. I like Vesta. It's always showing new things. The Dawn spacecraft found that it was sort of like a little planet in that it had a mantle and a core. I guess that possibly led people to think maybe volcanoes would have happened early on in its history, and which I naively would have thought as well. But I guess it's just been peppered by asteroids. Yes, but this didn't completely rule out the existence of craters of volcanic origins. This is actually a debate which was brought up about the craters in the moon a very long time ago, uh, before the space missions to the moon. And uh, uh, there was an extensive debate on whether or not uh, uh, those craters were created by volcanoes or by impacts, and uh, eventually through a careful but relatively simple analysis of the craters, uh, they managed to figure out that they're mainly impact craters, if not entirely impact craters. The news article that I found was a uh, press release from the United Kingdom's National Astronomy Meeting, which was last month, on the Next Generation Optical Space Telescope. Professor Martin Barstow from the University of Leicester gave a talk at the meeting asking governments and space agencies around the world to back the Advanced Technologies Large Aperture Space Telescope, or at last. <laughs> so when is at last, at last going to come along? At last is, uh, according to the press release, something that could be launched in the year 2030. But uh, as with a lot of space missions, uh, these dates ultimately get pushed back. So it would probably be later than 2030. It would be a particularly uh, challenging undertaking. Right now it's only at the conceptual stage where people are just trying to figure out how to uh, create this telescope uh, and to operate this telescope in space. One of the challenging aspects of this is that it would have a primary mirror with a diameter of 20 meters. Uh, to put that into context, the Hubble Space Telescope has a diameter of 2.4 meters. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be launched in a few years' time, has a diameter of 6.5 meters. And the largest ground-based optical telescopes have diameters around 10 or 11 meters. So this would be much larger 
than any of the existing ground-based telescopes. In fact, the only telescopes which are comparable in size to this thing working at optical wavelengths are uh, telescopes like the EELT, which uh, the European Southern Observatory just began construction on in Chile earlier this year. So with the EELT, that has this huge mirror and they say that they're going to be able to correct for the effects of the atmosphere, so the scintillation of light as it comes through the atmosphere, they'll be able to correct for very well. But clearly by this project it shows that astronomers still think it's worth actually launching a large telescope into space. So what are the advantages, say, that ATLAS would have over something like the EELT? Well, first, one of the advantages which I think uh, we can mention about the ground-based telescopes is that uh, because it's not as expensive to build heavy things at a ground-based telescope site as it would be to launch really heavy things into space, it's possible to build very large uh, facilities at the ground-based telescope, and this is particularly needed for spectrometers. If you want to spread out the light a lot from a telescope, you need to put a... Uh, uh, spectrometer in a very large building. And if you look at the construction of some ground-based telescopes, they have very large side buildings which are specifically uh, for performing uh, spectroscopy. So something like the EELT is not going to become obsolete just because at last comes along and can do the same observations from space. The two advantages that at last has. First, even though the EELT will be able to correct for the Earth's atmospheric effects, it's probably not going to be quite as good as what you could get just from space. So you'll probably still get sharper images from ATLAST than you would from a ground-based telescope of the same size. A second, there are parts of the electromagnetic spectrum which you can't see from the ground, even though the Earth's ozone layer is thinning, you still can't see ultraviolet light from astronomical objects very well, so you need to be in space for that. And uh, the Earth's atmosphere, as uh, we mentioned during Mark's odds and ends, uh, absorbs uh, some mid-near-infrared light. It also produces mid-infrared radiation as well. If you want to observe in those wavelengths, you have to go into space as well. And now from giant telescopes to a giant of astronomy, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Northern Hemisphere night sky. The night sky in July 2014. Well, to be honest, there's not an awful lot of darkness. In fact, I stayed up until after half past 11 before it got really dark last night. And that's about the same sort of time before the summer solstice as July's afterwards. So what do we see? Well, at about 1 o'clock at the beginning of July, about midnight in the middle, or 11 o'clock at the end of July, this is what you might see. And we'll start looking towards the south, west and east. Well, setting over in the west is a fairly bright star called Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes, the kite. A little bit up to its left is a rather lovely circle of stars called Corona Borealis, but not very bright. And then we come to a very nice constellation, still moving eastwards and upwards. is Hercules. The four brightest stars form an asterism called the Keystone, 
and I'll come back to that in the highlights of the month. Moving over again, we come to perhaps the brightest star you'll see in the sky, which is Vega in the small constellation of Lyra the Lyre. It again has a very interesting binocular object that I'll point out later on. Over and slightly up to the left of Vega is another bright star called Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. The five brightest stars of Cygnus are in the form of a cross called the Northern Cross. The faintest, the lowest one, which is down to the lower left of Vega, is called Alberio, and a small telescope shows it to be a beautiful double star with almost a golden and blue contrast between the two colours. Passing downwards through Valpecula and Sagitta, the arrow, very small constellations, we come to Aquila, the eagle, with its bright star, Altair. The three stars, Altair, Vega and Deneb, make up what is called the Summel Triangle. And this area is one of the nicest areas in the whole sky, I think almost as good as the Orion region that we see in the winter. Down below these constellations, not particularly bright stars in the constellations of Serpens Caput, Ophiuchus, Serpent Clouder. But way in the south, around midnight, is the constellation of Sagittarius. And given a good low horizon to the south, you might make out the stars that form what is called the teapot. And there's some lovely open clusters and nebulae in that part of the sky, all observed by Charles Messier and given Messier numbers. So do have a look at a Messier catalogue. Or you could even look and search for the Astronomical A-List, which is on the Jodrell Bank website. I wrote perhaps 15 years ago now, and it will list some of the best objects to see in each of the constellations. And finally, don't forget a tiny constellation, very pretty, down to the left of Cygnus and Lyra, called Delphinus the Dolphin. Four stars make a little pentangle, the body of the dolphin, and a further star, its tail. Well, what about the planets? To be honest, it's not the best month for planets this month. Jupiter passes behind the Sun on the 24th, so it will only really be visible in the first week or so, low above the western horizon, to be honest probably not worth trying to observe. Saturn is a little bit better. It lies in Libra, near the wide double star Alpha Libra. It falls in brightness from about plus 0.4 to plus 0.5. On the 21st, it halts its retrograde motion westwards across the sky and resumes its motion eastwards through the stars. The rings this month are at their minimum tilt this year of 21 degrees, but that still allows them to be well seen. But sadly, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, Saturn is moving towards the most southerly part of the ecliptic. And so even when due south, when it was at opposition a month or so ago, it's still at quite a low elevation, and the atmosphere limits our view. So again, it's probably basked its best this year. Mercury. Having passed between the Earth and the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on June the 19th, Mercury is now seen before dawn, and lies down to the lower left of Venus for much of the month. It'll be too faint to see, really, for the first week or so. It reaches greatest western elongation on July the 12th. That's when it's furthest in angle over to the west of the sun, when half the disk is roughly illuminated and at magnitude plus 0.4. So hard to see, really, in the morning twilight. 
It then slowly falls towards the horizon, but as it does so, its brightness increases to minus 1.4, so maybe easier to spot, and I'll come back to that in the highlights. Mars, in Virgo, lies close to Spica during July, and on the 13th passes just 1.3 degrees up and a little to its left. It's shrinking now from 9.5 to 7.9 arc seconds, and at the same time its brightness falls from magnitude 0 to plus 0.4. Really, one has to look for it as soon as darkness falls, but even then it will be quite low above the horizon, and only the most obvious features, such as Sirtis Major, are likely to be seen. Venus. Venus rises in the east-northeast as morning twilight begins, but even by sunrise is only about 20 degrees above the horizon. Its disk, now showing a full gibbous phase, as it moves beyond the sun, drops in angular size from 12 to 11 arc seconds. But at the same time, the percentage of the disk, which is illuminated, increases from 85 to 92%. As a result, the effective area reflecting the sun's light stays almost constant. So there's only a drop of 0.1 magnitudes from minus 3.9 to minus 3.8 in brightness. During the first few days of the month, Venus lies close to Aldebaran in Taurus. So what about this month's highlights? Well, on the night sky page of the website, I put a bit more about Saturn, which is still probably just about worth seeing. To find it in the sky, follow the arc of the plough's handle downwards to first find Arcturus, I mentioned earlier. Continue down to find the white first magnitude star Spica in Virgo. And Saturn, a little brighter than Spica, lies in Libra down to its lower left and will appear slightly yellow in colour. But again, it won't be that high above the horizon, and you have to look for it almost as darkness falls. But high in the sky in July are these two objects I hinted at earlier. There's a lovely globular cluster in Hercules called M13. The four brightest stars make up the keystone. If you move two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the keystone, you should with binoculars see a little fuzzy blob and a telescope will show it as a beautiful globular cluster, a spherical concentration of stars. And on the Night Sky website, I put on a picture of M13 that I took a month or so ago. Again, I mentioned Vega, and just to its left is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a double star is seen, but when observed with a telescope, under good seeing conditions, each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name, the Double Double. The end of June and the beginning of July are a very good time to spot what are called noctilucent clouds. They're most commonly seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude. They're the highest clouds in the atmosphere at heights about 80 kilometres or 50 miles. Normally they're too faint to be seen, but they can be visible when illuminated from sunlight, which is coming from below the northern horizon. So illuminating them, but the rest of the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So it's worthwhile, on a clear night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look towards the north and you might just spot them. Well, there are a few little groupings of the planets and the moon, on July the 5th, looking southwest after sunset, you should be able to spot Mars 
lying between Spica, Alpha Virginis, and a first quarter moon. Perhaps more interesting, on the 5th and 6th of July, about an hour after sunset, you may be able to see the two brightest asteroids, Vesta and Ceres, come within 10 arc minutes of each other in the constellation of Virgo. And on the night sky page, I provide a star chart to help you find them. Ceres will be at magnitude 8.5, with Vesta at magnitude 7.2. Although Ceres is almost twice the size of Vesta, having a diameter of 940 kilometers, it's less bright for two reasons. Firstly, it's further away, further out in the main asteroid belt. But secondly, it has a much darker surface than Vesta, and only reflects about 9% of the sunlight falling on it. Whereas Vesta, a medium gray color, actually reflects about 42% of the sunlight falling on it, which is actually quite a lot, and that makes it the brightest of all the asteroids. And a nice thought, although invisible, NASA's Dawn spacecraft is nearby in direction, making its way towards Ceres, which it will begin orbiting in the spring of 2015. On July the 7th, an hour after sunset, you might spot Saturn and a gibbous moon. Finally, on July the 24th, before dawn, looking east, not far above the horizon, you should fairly easily spot Venus at magnitude minus 3.9, and that'll be about 4.5 degrees to the lower left of a thin crescent moon, making it quite easy to find. And if you have got a good low eastern horizon, you may also be able to spot Mercury at magnitude minus 0.9, some 8 degrees down to the lower left of Venus. Well, there's not an awful lot of time to observe the sky during July, but I do hope you have a go. Thanks for that, Ian. Unfortunately, we don't have the Southern Hemisphere night sky for you this month, but that will be back along with the news in August. And now, on to the feedback. We had no posts this month, but we did receive something through email. Peter Conway said, The Jodcast keeps going on from strength to strength, and he liked the alternative view of John Butterworth, who did an interview about particle physics. Peter also asked what happened to May Extra. Unfortunately, a lot of people were away or busy, so we had to skip that one. But we bounced back with June Extra. On Facebook, Rock Howard commented on John Butterworth's interview too, saying it must be hard to be a particle physicist when you don't believe in particles. <laughs> and thanks to both Andrew Horner and Philip King, who noticed when the June Extra episode didn't appear on iTunes. On Twitter, Gavin Mellowship said, Love your podcast. Always interesting with quality interviews. Rob Johnson said, My daughter Helen Johnson made her first presentation at NAM this morning. Say hello to her for me. That's the National Astronomy Meeting, and we'll be having an episode full of interviews from that conference later this month. And I think that's also the first bit of feedback from a proud parent. So, hello Helen, and well done from your dad. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Or at Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thank you very much to Clem Pryke for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc and Mark Perver. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. So until next time, ciao, ciao.